We're continuing on with our sermon series through Acts of the Apostles. We are still in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Before we read the word of the Lord, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, asking the Lord to bless our reading and hearing of his word, that we might rightly hear it and rightly respond to it. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry now for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last Sunday, we began digging into this passage with a particular focus on the devotional practices of the Christian community after Pentecost. We discussed the first of these practices last week, examining how the Christian community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This Sunday, we're going to skip ahead just a bit and examine their devotional practice of what Luke calls here the breaking of bread. Now, this phrase could simply refer to an ordinary meal shared together, and without doubt, Luke indicates that the early church is doing this with regularity. However, when Luke mentions the breaking of bread or the breaking of the bread here, he is almost certainly referring to what we call the Lord's Supper, which was a practice that was more than likely occurring as a part of their meals together. And I think that this is made clear from the context of this passage, since Luke includes the breaking of bread in this list of other spiritual practices. Since studying the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayer are all spiritual in nature, it would make sense that the breaking of bread refers to something spiritual as well, and not just the eating of daily meals together, however important eating together may be. Further, Paul, who was Luke's traveling companion, is unquestionably referring to the Lord's Supper when he mentions the breaking of bread in his letters. Luke's audience then would have been confused by Luke using this phrase in a manner different than Paul had been using it. 
Now, the reason I would like to cover this practice this Sunday is because this is a Sunday in which we will be receiving the Lord's Supper as a part of our worship service. And my prayer this morning is that we would come to a deeper and richer understanding of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and that this would prove helpful in receiving the Lord's Supper in a deeper and richer way. Rightly understood and practiced, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper has great importance in the community of believers, as I hope that we can draw out this morning. And as I hope that you saw last week, we want to understand each of these practices because they prove to be formative practices, not just for the early church, but also for the community of believers in every age. These are practices, then, that we should highly value as practices that shape and mold us as God's people. So when we're thinking about what we want to be, who we want to be as a church, who God calls us to be as his people, we should understand these practices are essential and therefore must be an important part of our life together. With that said, I want to provide you with four reasons why Luke listed the Lord's Supper as one of the four spiritual practices that the early church devoted themselves to and why we should continue to devote ourselves to it today as God's people. So first, the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper is a means to remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. It's a means to remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. When he instituted the Lord's Supper on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus explicitly instructed his disciples to carry on this practice, doing it, as Jesus said, in remembrance of me. So before he was even crucified, Jesus had instructed the disciples to eat this meal together as a means to remember his sacrificial, his sacrificial and salvific work that he was about to accomplish for them on the cross. And we know from the Apostle Paul that the early church recalls what Jesus instructed and embeds this language of remembrance into their earliest liturgies. This is what we see in Paul when he tells the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, when he had, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So on a very basic level, the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal, which points us back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Jesus even explains to his disciples that this is what the elements of bread in wine signify. It's his body broken for them and his blood poured out for them. And this regular remembering carries with it an important purpose because it keeps Christ in his atoning work ever before us as his people. 
This is important because it is the saving work of Christ that is at the core of the identity of God's people. That they are a people that have been saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ. This is at the heart of the gospel message that the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth is the message that he delivered to them as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Every time we, as believers, share this meal together then, we are rehearsing this truth. We're proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ through which and by which we are redeemed by God's grace. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Remembering the death of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, as one Christian author put it, puts it, helps to embed gospel centrality into the company of the redeemed. It helps to embed gospel centrality into the company of the redeemed. If we are to be a gospel-centered people, then our life must be rooted in the gospel. It must be constantly before us. And the Lord's Supper does this for us. It is a picture of it. It is God's love on full display, the price of our redemption imaged for us in bread and in wine. And even as I think that most Christians understand that we are supposed to be remembering Christ's sacrifice through this meal, we might miss the full weight of this word, remember. Remember to us simply means to recall the past. And this isn't unimportant in this case, but it's only a small piece of what this word means in the context of God's word, because here it is used in the context of the covenant. And in the context of the covenant, remembrance plays a much larger role. You see, when the people of God, the Jewish people, celebrated the Passover meal, it was a remembrance of the Exodus event. But when they were instructed to remember, it wasn't simply remembering as we do in school when we're learning about world history, remembering dates and events for a test. Rather, through the ages, whether the Exodus was a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, the Jewish people remembered this event in a way that they could confess we were once Pharaoh's slaves. But by God's grace, we are the people whom God brought up out of the land of Egypt. We are the people with whom God has made a covenant saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That mighty act of God was our redemption. You see, remembering in this context is owning the story as your own. So it was a remembering in such a way that they saw their participation in the past event and saw their destiny and future bound up with it. It was remembering in a way that the past was 
rendered present. And this is how the early church understood the Lord's Supper, as the meal of the new covenant. The sacrifice of Christ provided the true Passover. It was the an exodus out of bondage to sin and death and into freedom of life in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the same way the Passover event was to be remembered through a meal, so too now the atoning work of Jesus Christ is to be remembered through the Lord's Supper. And this meant that the work of Christ wasn't to be remembered as an isolated event that happened eight weeks ago for the early church or eight years ago or 1,800 years ago. It was meant to be remembered in a way that Christ's atoning work was made present and personal for believers in every age. In remembering Christ's work in this meal, we are confessing. We are the people for whom our Savior died and rose again. We are the people whose sins put Christ on the cross and held him there. We are the people whose sins were dealt with on the cross. We are the people with whom God has delivered from sin and death and made a new covenant in the blood of Christ. We are the people to whom God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. So remembering in this way isn't just some abstract theological concept. The meal is meant to represent to us, to make present to us Christ and him crucified. And this has very real implications on us as God's people in Christ. The Apostle Paul comes to the church in Corinth saying, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it involves rehearsing the gospel, not just in word, but in deed. That Jesus Christ's body was broken for us just as the bread is. That his blood was poured out for us just as the wine is. This is the meaning of the sign of this covenant meal. God has always given his people covenant signs to help them remember who they are and whose they are. God does this because he is gracious to meet us where we are and to communicate himself to us in ways that we might understand. God knows we need signs. This is why we put on wedding rings when we get married, right? They declare our love and commitment to our spouse, and we as we exchange rings in the wedding ceremony, which is a covenant ceremony, we say something like this. This ring I give to you as a token and pledge of my constant faith and abiding love. This is similar to what God is doing in the signs of the covenant. He gives his people signs that declare and confirm that we belong to him and that his promises are sure. We might say then, as we do, God gives us signs and seals of his steadfast love and faithfulness to us. They don't just point to the truth about his covenant with us. Their message is confirmed from God, and the content of their message is secured by God's promises. Now, these signs might be significant in and of themselves, but the nature of the sign is to point to something larger beyond itself. 
And we see this throughout the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision to Abraham, which declares and confirms Abraham and his descendants belong to God as his people and will be blessed by God. The sign of the rainbow to Noah, which declares and confirms that God will never destroy the world again by a flood. The sign of the Passover meal, which declares and confirms that by grace Israel was claimed by God and delivered from the hand of slavery to live as God's people. And now in the new covenant, we receive new signs that correspond to the old baptism as a sign and seal of God's covenant people in Christ in the Lord's Supper. And the sign of the Lord's Supper points us who place faith in Jesus Christ to the atoning death of Jesus, which confirms to us that our sins are forgiven and that we belong to him because of the redemption wrought for us by the blood of Christ and that we then are heirs with Christ to his kingdom. And since it is a covenant sign, by partaking in this meal, we are acknowledging ourselves to be members of this covenant and pledging ourselves fully, wholly, unreservedly to God as those who belong to him. And even as the Lord's Supper for God's people is significant in this regard alone, in the context of God's covenant with his people, the Lord's Supper is understood in deeper ways still. You see, meals were actually important parts of covenant-making ceremonies. The parties entering into a covenant, which is a binding agreement that included promises and responsibilities of both parties, would seal that agreement by eating together. And we see this in Exodus chapters 19 through 24, where Moses and the leaders of Israel ate a meal up on the mountain in the presence of God after God made his covenant with Israel. The point of the covenant meal was to express an intimate fellowship between parties of the covenant. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us is happening in the Lord's Supper between God and his people. He asks these questions in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And we might be surprised at the Greek word here for participation. It's a word that you might know, koinonia. It's the very same word that appears in Acts 2 in verse 42, although here it is translated as fellowship. So the Lord's Supper is not simply about remembering Partaking of this meal in faith is fellowship with Jesus Christ in a participation in the benefits of his death for us. This brings us to our second reason that the Lord's Supper is so important for the community of believers. This meal is not only a memorial, but is also a means by which believers can experience Christ's presence with all of the benefits that come with being in union with him and the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he instructed his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. It implies that when we partake of the Lord's Supper in faith, we are spiritually laying hold of Christ and feasting on him in our hearts through faith. 
So this meal isn't merely symbolic. There is much more going on here. The Holy Spirit is using these elements to communicate Christ and his saving work to those who eat and drink in faith. And the early church certainly remembered that Jesus had told his followers earlier in his ministry, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, We don't understand Jesus to be speaking literally here. He isn't encouraging cannibalism, although there were some who misunderstood and took offense at what he said. And there are many today who continue to misunderstand. But rather, what he has in mind here is a spiritual feasting on him in faith, which allows for participation in the benefits of the redemption he earns on our behalf. It is through eating and drinking these elements in faith that Jesus Christ works his way into the whole of our being, abiding within us and we in him. Simply put, this meal, through this meal, we are brought into union with Jesus Christ. This is why we call it communion. And as we fellowship with Jesus through the meal by the power of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit binds us to Christ, the saving work of Jesus Christ is simultaneously applied to our lives. We are refreshed and energized by his presence. We're washed clean of our sins. We are nourished spiritually and strengthened in our service to God. This meal then is a means by which we can truly experience Christ in all of his reconciling power. Just as he communicated himself to us in a way that we could grasp and lay hold of in his incarnation, so it is in this meal, which uses everyday simple objects as elements. And just as he made himself one with us in his incarnation, he makes himself one with us through this meal. And this means that all that is his, all that is his, that we can dare to call it ours, his righteousness his life, his resurrection, his kingdom. I think that John Calvin beautifully captures this in his Institutes of Christian Religion when in the context of the Lord's Supper, he writes this. This is the wonderful exchange, which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, that by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us, That by taking on our own mortality, he has conferred his immortality on us. That by accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That by receiving our poverty onto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. And that by taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. For Calvin, that that was the heart of the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ takes what is ours that he might give to us what is his. 
As one theologian puts it so well, he takes our broken, sinful humanity, cleanses it by his self-sanctifying life of communion with the Father, his obedience, death, and resurrection. And now he comes back to us in the power of the Spirit to give himself to us in an act where he gives us back our humanity, now renewed in him saying, take, eat, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Our reception of Christ is grateful acknowledgement of this wonderful exchange. Jesus has taken our sin in exchange for our communion with the heavenly father through reconciliation he has won for us on the cross. Dearly beloved, this is a beautiful truth and reality. And so the early church recognized that sharing the Lord's Supper together was a source of immense spiritual power. And it remains for us today as we experience this wonderful exchange. This is why we understand, by the way, the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. St. Augustine famously put it, a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace. It is an outward sign of an inward and invisible grace. What we see is bread and juice. What we receive is much, much more. This is also why we consider the Lord's Supper to be an ordinary means of grace which is defined by one Christian author as the various channels God has appointed for regularly supplying his church with spiritual power. They are ordinary, not because they are of no special quality, but in that they are the regular means by which God is ordained to communicate his grace with his people. But even as we receive the benefits of Christ by fellowshipping with him, this is not just for us as individuals. It certainly affirms God's love for me and for you as believers. But by bringing me and you into fellowship with Christ, it is bringing me and you into fellowship with one another. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul doesn't just speak of participation or fellowship with Christ through the eating of the bread and drinking of the wine. The very next thing he says is this, because there is one bread, We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So third, the Lord's Supper was a means by which the community of believers were brought into union with one another. This is why the Lord's Supper is not to be celebrated in isolation. It is for the believers as a community. And this Fellowship with one another is significant on a number of levels, not the least of which for the early church was that God's people were no longer of one people group. They were being gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue. There is a lot in this world that divides us from one another and keeps us apart and at odds with one another. But in Jesus Christ, the dividing walls are demolished. Before Jesus Christ, everyone is recognized as a sinner who has fallen short of God's glory and in need of God's grace. Everyone is without excuse and without ability to make themselves righteous before God. If we are to be saved, it is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. 
And all who are called by Christ and saved by him are brought into union with him in the power of the Spirit. And in coming into union with him, believers are brought into union with one another, sharing together the benefits of our common redemption in Christ. The Lord's Supper then becomes a family meal shared by those who are claimed by Christ and have become members of his body. This was an important truth for the early church, which would have been struggling to overcome significant differences between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. But they could gather around a common table as God's children, share a common meal, and not only be reminded of this truth of Jesus' saving death, but be spiritually drawn together in union with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by way of feasting together on the body of Christ. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper today, regularly celebrated, remains a means by which God is drawing his children together and bringing unity within the body of Christ. Therefore, we should recognize this as a God-given means to combat alienation and isolation and division within the church. And I believe that this is something that we desperately need as we move out of this pandemic. There's a great need, whether we realize it or not, to gather around a common table once again and share this spiritual meal together in faith to be reminded that we are family in Christ Jesus and that by, by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, that we have been restored to fellowship, not just with God, but with one another. Lastly, the Lord's Supper is a means by which the people of God are reminded that Christ will come again to gather all of his people from the ends of the earth around the banquet table of the Lord in his eternal kingdom. Peter's Pentecost sermon has a strong sense of urgency to it. Peter immediately goes to the prophet Joel in his prophecy of the last days, which has come with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Peter urges repentance and faith in Jesus, not just because he wants to grow the church, but because he understands that the final event left in God's salvific plan is Jesus coming again. And we are at the doorstep of this event. And when Jesus comes, he's not only coming as king, he's coming as judge. And the Lord's Supper points forward to this coming and to the feast of the Lamb that is spoken of in Revelation 19, which will occur when the kingdom of God is fully consummated at the end of the age. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes again. This meal is anticipating his coming again. It is longing for his coming again. It's a foretaste of the meal we will share together when all of God's people are gathered from the ends of the earth when Jesus comes again. And as one theologian stated, we eat only little bits of bread and drink little cups of wine. For we know that our fellowship with Christ in this life cannot begin to compare with the glory that awaits us in him. And think about how important this would have been for the early church, which was up against tremendous odds. 
the constant reminder and foretaste of the coming day when Jesus Christ would gather all of his people into the joy and peace and righteousness of his kingdom and put all of his enemies under his feet. The, the meal was a necessity for his people to live boldly in faith despite the threat of persecution, fulfilling the commission he had given to them as they stood together fast, steadfast in the victory won for them and in his promises that they would be vindicated. But it's no less important for us today to remind ourselves of the coming day and to get a foretaste of this feast, the Lord's Supper then isn't just a means by which we refuse to live bogged down by our sin. It's a means by which we refuse to live in the fear of oppression and death. Every time we partake of this meal in faith, we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ has come. He has died for the forgiveness of our sins, that he has risen to newness of life, that he reigns in heaven, and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So I hope that sharing this meal together is an important, as important for us as it was for the early church. For the truth that it signifies and seals upon us has not changed. It continues to be a means by which we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice for us and our identity in him as his people. It continues to be a means by which Christ communicates his benefits to us and we are strengthened to go forth in faith, unified in the faith, eagerly anticipating the day when he comes again. So dearly beloved, let us keep the feast. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, that he is for us bread from heaven. Help us to rightly celebrate this meal that we even now prepare to receive. Help us to come to this table in true faith, in repentance, to be forgiven of our sins and bound to Christ in the power of his resurrected life. Use this meal as a means by which you produce in us stronger faith and greater unity among us. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? 